Welcome back to some immigration good news. Today, our interview guest is Harry Lopez, who is an absolutely absolutely delightful person. I think you're going to enjoy hearing him talk about his experience being a first-generation American from parents who had to flee Nicaragua during the um, during the war in the 80s that really was so devastating um, and, and continues to have repercussions in Nicaragua. What I love about this conversation with Harry is his empathy toward so many different people from lots of different walks of life, his passion for helping the Latino and Latinx community, and most importantly, his gratitude for some of the hardships that being a first-generation American, helping his parents navigate this process and really helping grow uh, and, and raise himself from such a young age, the power that he has because he's had these experiences really helps make him such a powerful coach and healer, which is what his passion in life is dedicated to. Enjoy. Yay. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm so good. It's so good to connect. We haven't seen each other in, yeah. I guess it's been a year and a half now, year and a couple months. Yeah. And I remember you very well from level one. <laughs> Yay. Yes. I didn't come to the rest of the levels. So you and I met at, um, it's an Ascension Leadership Academy, a, um, what would you describe ALA as it's like a personal development, emotional intelligence boot camp, unlike anything else I've ever done in my whole life. Yeah. And you did only just level one, right? I know. I only did level one. There's three levels. Yeah. I feel like it, this is like Zelda or something. It kind of is. Yeah. I kind of want you to continue to see because the way you just described it, just from having done level one is you haven't seen nothing yet because level two is just like this other world dimension and this other world. So um, actually, yeah, it's been about a year and a half. I remember you from level one. I went all the way through and then I coached it twice. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. What I loved most about, um, that experience, I loved the visualizations we did. I loved those. Yeah. Those were super powerful. And I think you did a good job describing it. I think it's like a leadership, emotional intelligence, personal development, growth bootcamp of some kind that just brings together all these strangers from different parts who are just looking to up level. And, um, yeah, I, I definitely think it's like a bootcamp. It's like, it's pretty intense. It's intense. (laughs) And I mean, I had like mental shifts that I've never done any like mind altering, um, experiences other than drinking alcohol. Um, so, but I imagine that I, that's the closest thing I can imagine it being like, was I just felt like my mind could go in these other places and absolutely wonderful. And I made some great friends before and during and after. So it's so great for us to connect. Yeah, me too. Thank you for inviting me on here. I'm super yes, excited too, because yes. I know we didn't have that many interactions. Yeah, well, I I think you're absolutely lovely and it's been wonderful to be able to be Facebook and social media friends and kind of see what the other person's doing and being like, this guy's showing up and I want to, I want to be part mm. of that. Yeah. Thank you so much. Likewise, I'm seeing you as well. I'm so inspired and I love what you're up oh. to. And I think that there's a lot of synergy. So I'm so happy that you reached out. Yes, yes, for sure. So tell me a little bit about you. And I know that you live in Tucson. Miami. In Miami. When did you move to Miami? I've been in Miami. Well, you know, actually, I was born and raised in Miami. And I moved to Nashville and I in for college. And I lived there for eight years. And I moved back to Miami. And then I lived in LA for a little bit. And then I moved back to Miami. So I'm, I'm in Miami. Well, currently, I'm in San Francisco for the week. I'm on vacation. And just, you know, just seeing places, doing fun things and uh, doing I a little bit of I don't know how I had you placed in Tucson, but for some reason <laughs> I had you in Tucson. I was like, I don't even know how we haven't gotten together. I, I need to get down to Tucson and see you. But my is <laughs> a little bit farther away. Okay. So it is. Tell me about you and what you do and what your purpose is that you're, you're seeking to serve. Mm-hmm. Yes, my name is Harry Lopez. I am a first-generation uh, child of immigrants from Managua, Nicaragua. That's where my, my both my parents are from. Uh, they immigrated to the U.S. during the 1980s during the Revolutionary War of the Sandinistas. I was born and raised in Miami, a very Latino upbringing. Um, my whole family, a lot of my family had moved to Miami. And, um, you know, I it was really interesting with 
you know my being the first gen in my in my family and and paving the pathway forward for for them and um, being the first in my family to go to college they being the first in my family to get like a real job here first in my family to do a lot of different things and that really does describe a lot of my upbringing um, so today I am a full-time uh, life and business transformation coach for predominantly um, Latinos but I like to say that I work with underrepresented leaders and visionaries mm -hmm. who are up to really wonderful things in the world. So I work with a lot of um, leaders of color in technology, in nonprofits, corporate settings. Um, I run my own accelerator. My own brand or coaching program is called Launch Latinx. It's, it's about bringing together really ambitious, motivated Latinos to come together and launch their greatest ideas. And while doing so, launching themselves to the world. And that's what I find the majority of the work is, is really doing the inner work, the shadow work, the subconscious reprogramming, um, unlearning a lot of the stories and paradigms that we bought into most of our lives. And just letting all that go and stepping into unshakable self-worth and launching badass things into the world. So a lot of my students are also first gen or second gen. A lot of my students are, um, you know, Latinx. Latinx is is really inclusive of all gender, non-binary, trans, LGBTQ. Um, we have undocumented folks. We have all kinds of folks who with from different documentation status and just incredible parts of the, like diff incredible individuals from all parts of the world. We've had Latinos in Mexico, Latinos in Canada, uh, Latinos working on podcast authors. We've had speakers. We have a lot of coaches. We have therapists, healers. We have folks working on nonprofits or apps, um, folks in tech, and so on and so forth. So that's what I've been working on for the last, let's say, four years, I think. And uh, it's been an incredible journey. Super incredible. <laughs> I love it. I love it. What do you think makes you, you know, whether it is a initially viewed as a handicap and later viewed as our superpower, um, or whether it has always been a superpower one way or the other being first gen has definitely influenced you. I mean, it's, it's established, like it's part of what you do every single day where you're helping other members of the Latino community. Um, was it always that way? Did you always feel like being first a first generation American was something that made you powerful? I think I definitely have more of an, an appreciation for it today than I ever had before. I think before I was, um, I'm not sure if the word is resentful or I don't know. There's there's some sort of sentiment that I had around it because um, I remember when I was when I went to college um, and I went to college in Nashville, Tennessee, it was, it was the first time I had really left Miami for a long period of time. And it was a, I went to Vanderbilt University on a full ride scholarship and it was like culture shock. It was very different. And I looked at a lot of my peers who were very wealthy, whose, you know, whose families would come and visit often, you know, it was hard for me to even get my family to come to, to move me in or even to graduation because a lot of the financial hardships that my family faced um, but so I, I always saw it as, I always felt like an obstacle and like a hardship. And today I see it as the greatest, like you said, superpower, because it's, in, it's instilled in me this, this resiliency that is so cool. It's so badass. Like I, I just never take no for an answer. I just know that there's always a way. And I always know that I have the resources within me to figure it out. Um, and so I think a lot of my my experience of being a first gen was growing up very early, like being an adult, and and witnessing things that you know oftentimes a lot of a lot of children don't don't experience. Um, a lot of the, examples. Yeah, like I remember my seventh birthday, or even before then, it was a lot of there was a there was a, a consciousness around money that I had that I don't think a lot of kids grow up with. Like I was worried about on my seventh birthday, are we going to be okay? Are we going to survive? Is this, I mean, are, is it okay to have this? I mean, is it okay to have fun, this much fun? And another thing too was um, I always, I sought out, I think this is an, ex, this is a, a high achiever, a, a high achiever perfectionist mentality that was instilled in me since from a young age, because there was a lot of self-responsibility that I had on myself, knowing that um, I always felt like I, I needed to be the protector for my family. 
And so the way that I, I went about doing so was excelling in school. So just like a perfect kid, like I was the valedictorian, I was a boy, I was not just a boy scout, I was the Eagle Scout. I was competing in karate and I was just kind of obsessive and I became a world champion martial artist. Like just a lot of, um, and that, what that created in me as a kid was that, of course I grew up early, but I didn't have, I wasn't like going out and having fun with other kids often. I was just working. Yeah. I was like a hard worker. Have you read, um, I'm not your perfect Mexican daughter. No, I haven't. But a lot of my students, a lot of my friends that because that is, I mean, it's such a beautiful book. And I, I think that I have not, I'm not a first gen, um, I'm not a Mexican daughter, uh, mom and dad, they're like mutts from Europe somewhere. Um, <laughs> so I don't even really know where we come from or anything like that, which is so funny. Cause I spend most of my life, like just loving other people's cultures. And I love the American culture, which is such a hybrid of all these other cultures, but I don't even know air quote where I'm from, but in any <laughs> event, I think that some of the sentiment you're talking about, you would love that book, but mm. when you, so when did your, and, and this, this may not have happened. Did you spend a lot of your childhood translating for mom and dad? Oh, yes. Even yeah. to this day, actually, it's, yeah. yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. The responsibility on, on a kid to help me read this, uh, help me read this document. That's very important, you know? And yeah. Oh, so much. And, um, I am, you know, on my, on my, for my father's, on my father's side, my dad, my dad and his family, they call me the doctor. Um, so I'll come and, you know, do yoga and, and support with anxiety and breathing and, you know, the holistic and, and growing, like that's almost become my, like my role now as an adult, but growing up, I was the translator. I was the, um, I was also the parent. It seems like I was the parent, I was the um, the type the typist the typer. <laughs> I would type documents for my family. I was dealing with all of my financial stuff at a very young age, so I was doing fine FAFSA scholarships applications. You know, my family didn't have any; they didn't know how to do any of that. Um, and so, I always just thought it was normal because I grew up in Miami, where there are a lot of Latinos and a lot of, you know, children of immigrants. And so, I just thought this is just the way it is. You know, you just figure it out on your own. I didn't know that there was, um, yeah, that a lot of, I didn't, it, it was, it baffled me to even the, the notion of kids have a lot of support from their families on those things. Like, I didn't know what that was. Like, there was never, I remember when I was in middle school and high school, my mom would support me with a lot of projects, like the artistic ones, the creativity. Like, if I had to do a big poster, my mom would help me because um, she's really artistic. But for the most part, there was also, when it came to schoolwork, it was, homework was me. I was on my own. Um, exams, SAT, ACTs, writing, essays, that was, I was on my own. Um, so, yeah, and I, and I don't want to come, I don't want to be a victim about it. It's like, that's, oh my God, what a privilege. <laughs> like, yeah. that I had to figure that out on my own. It was just tremendous and amazing um, there's something else I wanted to say about that too. Yeah, I guess it, the thought left me, but. <laughs> a lot of times um, people who are very high achievers, they do it almost as a trauma response. Do you feel like some of your achievement has been in order to feel safe? Yeah, totally. It's like, if I don't achieve, like who, who am I, right? If I, because all of my growing up, almost all of my, my self-worth was was external it was on achievements it was outside of me and I didn't know anything else it was for you know as a child I grew up thinking that oh in order to be loved I had to do xyz because I, I quickly noticed at a young age that being the gold star kid got me good it got me a lot of attention yeah mom and dad were super proud of that yeah oh yeah and and my dad especially would brag to the to the family members about mira Harry mira lo que está haciendo and would show them pictures and would do things and you know that that's when the energy the the that attraction was or the energy was created yeah, yeah so that's what I picked up on how have you shifted in in young adulthood we're we're all still young adults I'm gonna lump myself in that. How has it for you, um, especially being a 
it sounds like very much a spiritual healer and coach. How have you helped not only yourself shift that, but others? I think it's just realizing that my self-worth is inherent, like really coming to, to sit with the truth of that through, through deep meditation, through a lot of inquiry work, through a lot of pain, painful processes that, that have revealed to me that um, when, I, it, when I place my self-worth outside of me, there's always just so much suffering. And like the attachment to that creates deep suffering for me because it's never in those things that I feel deeply fulfilled at the end of the day. It's in, in um, it's mostly my fulfillment comes from the spiritual context of life. Like knowing that I am inherently worthy of anything that I desire, independent of any outside circumstances or external factors or accolades or any of those things that I, I, I bought into for how many, like 20 plus years of my life. And so rewiring a lot of that conditioning has been the work of my lifetime and it's never ending. Like I notice a lot of those same patterns will, will just creep in often. And, and I think that, you know, being being a, an entrepreneur and being on social media, especially and seeing, you know, the highlight reels of people that you see online, it's easy not to compare and not to go into that. Um, yeah, to go into that. Um, and so, you know, I grew up a competitive athlete. I was competitive with myself and I was competing literally with, liter with other kids, with other fighters in martial arts. And so a lot of my mindset was like, you got to win. It was like that winner's mentality, winning, beating, uh, competing against others. And so for, and for me, a lot of building my business has been just dismantling a lot of those mindsets, knowing that it's not, it's not a me versus them, win, lose thing. And we learned that in ALA. It's like everybody gets to win. And how can I, as I'm winning, how can I bring others along the journey of, of supporting them in winning too? And that's been the whole work of coaching. It's like, how do I, how do I hold space for, for folks that I'm working with to, to do the same work that I've been doing so that they can win and, and leave, leave their lives um, from a place of fulfillment and joy versus all this other stuff that ultimately leads to, to uh, lack of fulfillment. Um, when you're working yeah. with someone and you want to help them win, because that's why you, when I win, you win. And when you win, I win because we're mm. connected. What is the phrase? All boats rise with high tide. I never say it right. It's the Kansas girl me. I'm not used to <laughs> groundwater. I'm like, I'm landlocked. Give me a farm reference. My husband <laughs> always jokes, but I love that phrase because it's so true. When the tide goes up, all boats rise, whatever it is, you get the idea. I totally get it. <laughs> <laughs> but when, I mean, this is, this is a lot of me coming through here. And so I'm, I want you to help me understand this, please. When people say that this is what they want, you know, I want, I desire X and then I do not behave in a way that is going to help me have X be, do, or have X. We, we have, we have a misalignment. Either you don't really want it, or you're not willing to do what it takes in order to really have it. So do you really want it? But I guess what it keeps circling back to is when you're working with someone who says that they want to be, do, or have a certain thing and they're not acting in alignment with that, what do you say to them? Mm, yeah, that they're out of integrity. Mm. Yeah, it, it, that there's a, there's a conscious commitment. There's a, an intention around having something, but there's a competing commitment. That's actually what you're, you're, you're saying that you desire. So if you want to write a book, but you're just completely avoiding it and doing other things every time that you think about it, it's like you're not really committed to it. There's a competing commitment and you're out of integrity and you're out of alignment. Yeah. So what do you do? You get clear on what's standing in the way. Like what are the stories and the limitations, conscious or unconscious, that are getting in the way of you having what you desire? And, and a lot of my work is, is mental, emotional, somatic. So it's, it's, it's typically comes down to one belief. Like what is the belief that stands in the way of you having what you desire? And a lot of this comes back to the work of Byron Katie, a spiritual teacher. I bring in a lot of her work with my students. So it's like condensing it to primal third grade language. I'm not good enough, or that's too hard, or 
no one's going to take me seriously. No one's going to read it. So what's the point? So it's like a self-sabotaging mechanism that is just a survival mechanism protecting you that is standing in the way. And once you just spot it, you bring presence to it, conscious awareness, you inquire into it, just like asking yourself, literally just a simple question, is this true? Is this belief true? Mm-hmm. You feel it, you presence it, and you let it go, mm-hmm. and you release it. And the ego hates stillness. So the more still you can be with these limiting beliefs and these thoughts that are coming up for you, the more you can just lift them and free them. And the mind has all, the mind is like a blanket with all these, these threads. And so you're just picking up one thread at a time and just getting clear of what's standing in your way. And then that coupled with the accountability, the structure, um, the, the discipline and a clear vision and getting really specific about what it is that you want. So I think it's, for me, a lot of the work is really deep, is the transformational work. So going deep into what's really, really holding you back. And once this lifts, it's like, this is going to support you in this area. But then what we know to be true is that what happens in one area, it creates a ripple effect of change and impact in other areas of your life. And so you're going to, you're going to daughter better, mother better, sister better, lover better, um, everything better as a result of doing the inner work. The inner work is, is the greatest work. Um, and so you know, you, you go into just the, the inquiring work and then you create the, you create the fence around like the tree or the support to kind of hold you accountable and make sure that you're on track to creating and meeting your, your intention, Mm -hmm. supporting yourself. I meet so many people in my line of work that they're desperate to get a green card or a work permit or their driver's license. Um, because they've been undocumented for so many years. And then we show them the path for how to do it. And I, I, what I see is that it's either they can't imagine themselves living this different life. And so it's just like, it's a gray void in their mind where their imagination, the movie reel that would normally play across your, your mind's eye, seeing you get your green card in the mail or, or whatever it is, getting your driver's license, registering your car in your name they can't see it, but the most painful is for the people who can see it, but they don't believe they, I guess it's self-worth. They don't believe they're worthy of it. Somehow they believed this lie that maybe they've heard for too many years, the rhetoric and the media, um, that has demonized, um, immigrants and made them seem like criminals. And, um, so they, they almost take on this belief that, this isn't for me. And it is the saddest thing to see because you, you see the disconnect between, I want this, I can see myself have it, but something is literally holding me back from just walking forward and getting it. Oh, that just really touched my heart because I have so much family who is currently in, in an an immigration process or case of some kind. And I know so many people who are as well. And also speaks into a lot of a lot of what I notice as well in working with my community and and in just you know being Latino and having my family is that there's a lot of survival-based thinking versus um, future-based thinking and dreaming. And I think that uh, what I notice to be what I notice is that we almost don't give ourselves the ch- and I'm going to lump myself in there as a child of immigrants who are who are who are you know to some extent facing some immigration sort of um, challenges that you almost just don't give yourself the opportunity to dream mm-hmm. to envision what's terrifying. possible it's terrifying and you um you live your life in this state of hiding you yeah. live your life in this state of let me not make up let me not ruffle feathers because if i do i'm something's going to happen and i'm going to be supported or i'm going to i can't I, I can't draw too much attention to myself i've got to almost walk around a walk about this life just kind of whispering and invisible or tiptoeing my way around and and just noticing how that like trickles into every part of your life and your children and communities and how how everybody starts doing it and how how disruptive it is to to branch out and not just that, but the mental, I would say strength, agility and willpower that it requires for you to consciously step out of that like routine, like interrupting that routine is 
is so um, incredible. That's how you lead to the liberation. That's how you create your own liberation is activating your voice and activating your soul and, and, and getting clear on what it is that you want and your soul purpose. So yeah, I think, you know, what you just said really speaks into why I do what I do is because I noticed that so many of us are doing it, especially children of immigrants, especially in my community, Latinos, who are just tiptoeing their way through their lives. My husband is a first gen, uh, my father-in-law's Canadian American and um, didn't catch the American side until I got a hold of him. So um, my husband definitely, I mean, he's been in the air force now for almost 20 years and I think still grapples with leadership. I mean, he, he's an excellent leader, but I guess the idea of having watched his dad just float below the radar for all those years, not wanting to be, and his dad is still someone who he would much rather build you the empire. He's a carpenter, build you whatever it is that you want to want to see, but he doesn't want to be there to take any of the credit. And you, I, I thought that it was a Canadian thing. And then I realized, no, I, I think it's an immigrant thing because I see this so much with my clients and, um, it's a privilege to get to be in, in an immigrant space, um, that I am in here in Arizona. The thing that for me, kind of what you're talking about with when, when you can't visualize it, or if you dare to visualize it, it's, um, it's almost more painful than if you do with having status or, you know, maybe being able just to travel home and see family for the first time, because now you have papers to re-enter the country. For me, I remember reading, I couldn't get pregnant for many years. It took me like eight years to get pregnant. And mm. for all these years, I, I almost assured myself that it was okay. Like it's, it's all right. This will be fine. I don't actually even want kids. I have four kids now. So like everything worked oh. out, but I remember reading this book and it was talking about how it's so important to visualize being pregnant and visualize holding your baby and visualize all these different aspects and just the little crack in my mind's eye, like a flicker of that hope was terrifying and broke me. And for a long time, I was very closed off to that because the idea of hope inside you where you can visualize and see it is, um, it is terrifying. I, I don't have another word for it other, other than terrifying. There's a, one of my, favorite spiritual teachers is named Reverend Michael Bernard Beckwith. And I used to study with him at Agape Spiritual Center in LA. And he said this quote once that I'll never forget. He said, pain pushes, mm. vision pulls. Mm. So, you know, pain will push you down and will continue pushing you down. And, and that's what you will experience every single day of your life if you are in that mindset and that vibration of, of everything has to be so hard and painful. And the only thing that's going to get you out of that suffering is vision, is committing to a vision. And what I find in my line of work is that folks are very shaky on their vision. Folks have abandoned the vision. Folks sometimes have given themselves, sometimes very rarely have given themselves moments or glimpses of what the vision could be, but then tell themselves that they're not worthy of it and then let it go and abandon it. And so they're just living on autopilot. And then some folks are in vision and, um, or just not. And um, so what I wanted to say around that is that I think, you know, just speaking into my own experience, you know, seeing my family, it's... Um, my family, I, I have glimpses and memories of them being dreamers and then hardships happening and them just focusing in on the day-to-day. -day. Like we're just focused in on what are we going to eat? What are we having tomorrow? And then making it by, like just making it by paycheck to paycheck, living, making sure the rent is covered, making sure things are fine. My parents are incredibly vigilant, hypervigilant. When I come home, they, they're inspecting my car. They're inspecting me to make sure that I'm okay. They're inspecting my, my, my rear lights. They're looking, um, they're asking me about um, making sure that I have everything paid off, making sure that I, everything is just to avoid any kind of conflict. It's like very conflict avoidant. No, um, you don't get into fights. Especially you don't race. Mm -hmm. 
very much, very much compliant with authority. You don't, you don't question, you don't talk back. You are just the good kid. And so that's who I was growing up. I was the good kid. And to this day, like I'm chosen for a lot of things because I'm the good kid. I, they, I, I likely won't talk back. You know, it, it's not, it's only been until recently that I've recently become more like disruptive in, in, in my ways of thinking and really standing up for myself and, and, and accessing my voice. But for so long, it wasn't the case. And I think for a lot of folks, especially immigrants, they are literally just trying to get by day to day. And so, you know, why, what's the point? What's the point of thinking about the bigger, longer thing? Like, eh, it, it likely won't happen. You know, what are we going to eat today? What are we going to eat tomorrow? Where, where are we going to, you know, are we going to be able to pay the next rent, our next paycheck? It's a what lot of the thinking around that. What do you say to that? Like on a, on a soul level, what do you say to that from your soul to that soul? I say that my, my awareness today knows that we, there can be a both and. It's like, yes, let's focus on the rent. Let's focus on what we're going to eat. Tenemos que sobrevivir. We got to figure it out. We're going to figure it out. And let's dream. Let's dream too. And let's come together and hold each other accountable and have those conversations that we're not having. And oftentimes it takes some sort of um, interruption to create that. That's some sort of spark um, to show what's possible, to show what's possible. I love being home near my family. I love it because it's hard. My mom and I clash a lot. We're very similar. But I know that I lead my life and I live my life in a way that is so drastically different from anything that my family is, up, is, is like cool with. Like I go to yoga, I meditate, I do workouts in the morning on Zoom or whatever. And I, I, I'll bring my yoga mat to my mom's house and I'll do it in the living room. I take, I, I, I take care of myself. I take care of myself. I know that it's not a privilege. It's, it's a must. It's a right. It's, um, and, and so, you know, I will say that not every immigrant has had that experience because a lot of immigrants, you know, are coming to the country and they're, you know, they're very well off in their own countries and they come in with, with more access and privilege and wealth. And so it's, it's different mindsets. It's different ways of being. Um, my experience is my family didn't have very much wealth in their countries and they came here with very little at all to nothing. And so that was my experience. And I speak from that experience. And I'm so grateful for that experience. Wow. Because it's given in me again, like that resilience that like, I, I know how to create something out of nothing. Like, I know that if you left me somewhere without any kind of money or anything, I could just figure it out. I will, I will do very well. I will figure it out. And, and, and that has been my, I believe my winning formula as an entrepreneur. So what I would say to, to immigrants who are just getting by and just focus on the day-to-day, -day, fo focus on survival-based thinking, is that that, yes, it's important, focus on that, and we get to dream as well. So let's roll up our sleeves, let's, let's sit in and, and really imagine what a beautiful life could be like in 5, 10, 15, 20 years from now. And in the laws of manifestation state that whatever it is that you want to, you, you desire 25 years from now, really capitalize and think about what are the qualities, the ways of being, who are you being then, and get so specific. Get specific to the T. How are you? How are you walking? How are you feeling? What are you looking like? Where are you hanging out? Where are you? What what kind of money do you have? Like get excited about it and um, see how you can collapse time and begin to embody those qualities today. Like just in a moment, in a spark. Like if you want to be confident, if confidence is what you desire, start embodying the vibration of confidence right now and just start almost, I don't like saying fake it till you make it. I like saying feel it till you heal it. Like start feeling it. Like how confident you start walking about the world? How would um, wealthy you start operating in the world? And and what gets to go? Like what is, what is no longer going to continue on in this journey with you? And, you know, after when I meet my clients for the first time, you know, I run the, the accelerator, the Launch Latinx Accelerator. It's called Lanzate. And after our first session, our big welcome session, their, big, their homework is literally to just go clean out everything that needs to be cleaned out in your life. Go clean out your car. Go clean out your office. Clean out whatever. You can't come to our next session. I don't want any kind of 
dirty junk energy into our next conversation or energy and students come back saying that they um, they got rid of their car or they cleaned out their whole closet that they had been putting off for 15 years or that they finally cleaned out this one area of their life or they ended this relationship literally the homework is just to go clean everything up <laughs> it's so powerful and so i think that our families and our communities can do the same like start cleaning up things that are not working start like it's like it's almost that like creating that cognitive shift of beginning to wake up and that's what the awakening is about and my work is about bringing awakening through through the coaching programs and the accelerators for latinos i love it i love it yeah our environment is so important and then i like that your students are finding oh go clean up i need to clean up my relationships too Ooh. yeah i know oh that's actually harder than cleaning out the closet i'm sure but when we think mm -hmm. about collaborating and building up um, different communities, what are ways that you think are valuable for um, white people to engage with the Latino? And I know that Latino and Hispanic, I think that there's um, competing voices on whether those are proper or not. I want to put that aside. I, what I'm trying to ask is um, I'm fortunate in that I get to be I am the minority in my community, the community that I have gotten to be invited into because I'm an immigration law provider, legal services provider. Um, I'm like the, always the odd one out. And I absolutely love that. It is a great <laughs> feeling to be able to, cause I grew up in Kansas, which is predominantly white. Everyone I grew up with spoke English. Um, I didn't get to see other cultures unless it was on TV or I read about it in books. And so now I'm just like obsessed with being and injecting myself into other cultures. But I, I think that if I didn't have this platform, I don't know how I would get involved in that. So there are lots of people who want to find ways to learn from, be supportive of, and really, you know, gain value from as well. It's not like the white person needs to come in and support someone else. It's like, can you give me value too? Um, I can learn so, so much from you. Um, how can, how can these two communities work better together? Mm. Yeah. I think what you're doing right now on this podcast is a beautiful representation of, of what it might look like what it looks like is just if folks in kind of positions of power could uplift and, and provide pathways of opportunity for underrepresented marginalized folks to rise up, um, to mention us at the table, to bring us into rooms that we otherwise, if we were even to have access to, we'd be too scared to enter into. Like we need, we need you to, we need your handholding. We need you to help us walk in because we're, you know, with that self-worth conversation is so deeply entrenched in a lot of our, of our, our being. Um, and just uh, and just advocating for for folks and 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 bringing folks into uh, positions of leadership where there's more um, representation on teams so that you know um, audiences and communities are are represented and supported by folks who look like them as well. Um, I think also just on other you know education on just educating themselves. Um, yeah, like folks in positions of power to continue just educating themselves on the inequities and the, and the systems and how they play out. And um, that's one. And then also, you know, folks who are in positions of power with, with wealth to contribute and donate to um, pathways for expansion for entrepreneurs and, or sorry, not just entrepreneurs for, for immigrants. Um, and I see it on my Instagram, my social media all the time. You know, I have uh, in, in the accelerator that I've run, I have, undocumented folks who are in the program. And even while they're undocumented, they are creating GoFundMes and, um, and crowdsourcing for other undocumented folks to pay for their, a lot of my colleagues my, in my spheres, they're, um, they're part of the, oh my God, where they came here as little kids, but oh, they got- they're DACA. And so they will raise money for other DACA students to get their, their applications filed and scholarships and doing programs or um, because I'm connected, of course, in the Latino community, I see a lot of, of organizations that are um, very vocal about, hey, these are opportunities for undocumented or DACA students. 
these are scholarships, these are fellowships, these are grants. You know, there's, um, um, I, we were providing a scholarship at one point for, for undocumented folks, uh, BIPOC for trans LGBT, LGBTQ Latinx folks. Um, and so there's a lot of, you know, top-down work. There's a lot of like uh, lateral, yeah. lateral support and support needed as well. And, you know, there's a lot of privilege within the Latino community too, or uh, I don't want to speak just into Latinos because I know that your podcast is all immigrants as well, but, you know, privilege among immigrants to, and the research I believe has shown that when immigrants uh, create wealth, they disperse the wealth back into their communities. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we as immigrants uh, can do a better job also of just continuing to up level, to, to lift up, raise the ladder and raise our, our gente and our communities up back up as well. Yeah, I think that for me, when I, when I find myself, it, it's such a, it's such a neat time to put the shoe on the other foot where, you know, for many years, I would say things like, and it was very ignorant. I'm kind of ashamed of it, but it is what it is. You know what you know until you know better. But I would say things like, I don't see color because I was taught that you're not supposed to see color. And then you start realizing like, oh, I very much see color. I know I'm the only white lady in this room right now. And I feel very (laughs) uncomfortable about that. And it's because my whole life, I was the majority. And now I get to put the shoe on the other foot and realize, so I'm here in this space. And this is a different culture than what I'm used to. And I'm just going to be here to eat it up and um, hopefully learn something and hopefully be able to help that took me a really long time to be comfortable with. And, um, I think a lot of people who grew up like me find themselves very uncomfortable in those situations because they feel like maybe they're not welcomed. What would you say to someone like that? Okay. I I just have to say that I, I can already hear my family's voice. Like, let's say for example, if, if I was to, um, introduce them, you to them or them to you, they would trust you they would just because of your because of your your presence as a white woman and being an attorney you are an attorney right yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah being I mean, an attorney last i checked and, <laughs> and yeah taken away yet <laughs> <laughs> and like Time advocating for the family my family would trust you more and actually i know what they would call you la la, la rubia they would call you the blonde lady mm. uh, they would call you la rubia like they were just that's it you were that's that would be your your whole name la rubia and so just knowing that the awareness of like yeah you're there's privilege you have the privilege in the room of course but also that there's almost this like thirst and yearning for help please help please help me please help us we trust you we need you and and I say that also because I remember that one of my mentors, Andrew Mendel, <laughs> this is the second time I mentioned him on a podcast. He was doing um, he was doing something around education reform and was working in, in East Ramapo in New York City and was working with Latino communities. And he also, as the as a white male, had similar questions of why wait, he felt like this imposter imposter syndrome of wait, why me? I'm not representing the the people, I don't look like them. I don't sound like them. I'm not anything. But again, I believe that they called him the Jewish guy, el judío. And he he just got out of his own mind. And he's like, it's not about me. It's about them. I want to serve. And I know that I have the tools within me to do so. So why not now? Why not me? And so he rose his, he raised his hand in a meeting and he's like, I'll do it. I'll take charge. I'll lead this group. And he was leading a group of Latino immigrants in New York City. And they were fine. They trusted him. So folks just need, they need a leader. They need a, uh, you know, what is it? The path to liberation is through awakened leadership, is through your own leadership. And so taking it off of you and making it about them, when you take it off of you and make it about them, it's no longer, you're no longer in the mind and all the, and all the limitations of the imposter of like, wait, what are they going to think? Oh my God, of this and this and that. It's like, hey, I get it. I'm in privilege. I have the privilege. And I want to support. I'm here to support. And so it's like both can exist. It's like there's that duality. It's like all relationships have that ambivalence of like, eh, I don't know, because like do this, but but hey, but she's here to help. They're here to help. We we need someone. We need support. We need all the support we can get. Um, and and I think that there's that trust that that instant trust. Um, I have found, especially particularly with white women, 
you know, with immigration, with immigrant communities, there's like more of that, that trust, you know, and even actually you being a white woman, like, um, let's say, for example, if you were entering a Cuban, like a Cuban community, you would not be seen as anything but Cuban, probably, like you could be Cuban, you could be Argentine, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of white, like presenting immigrants, so many. Like I'm seeing. Oh, as- I was greatly flattered oh. one day when a client asked me. She she was very concerned that she was that had not realized for these years I had represented her that I was not Hispanic. She was like, "Wait, you're white?" And I was like, "Wait, I I don't look white." <laughs> because I mean, for me, I guess we just we just I mean, yeah, I was I was cracking up because I thought I would probably be the worst Hispanic immigration lawyer since I don't speak Spanish <laughs> um, that there could ever be, um, but. No, I know what you mean. It's not that, so, you know, when we have so many people from Europe who have um, come and hostily uh, possessed so much of uh, Mexico, Central and South America, there's going to be a lot of people who who have European descent. So I know what you mean. For Mm -hmm. me, it has been so much of, I'm never going to be able to put myself in someone else's shoes. I, I just can't, I like Harry, I can't put myself in your shoes. Uh, my parents were both born here. They had their own obstacles that they had to overcome. You and I both, uh, have really latched on to achieving and being good in order to get the gold star for mom and dad. But you and I are never going to wear the same pair of shoes, but I can put my shoes next to your shoes and find all the similarities. And I really find that what I need is what I find myself selling as an entrepreneur. Like I need more freedom in my life. And so the best way for me to do that is by helping other people find freedom. It's like the flywheel of freedom gets going. And then next thing, you know, so many people are feeling like you're talking about liberation. Like these are my buzzwords. These are the words that get me out of bed, um, in the morning. And they send me smiling to my pillow at night because when we all feel liberated and we can be, we just get to be, and I love getting gold stars and achieving too. And I love winning, <laughs> not in a selfish, you lose kind of way, but like in a collective, we can be so good together. Um, but I think that comes from recognizing that we come from different communities and different backgrounds. And I don't need to be the same in order for us to play well together and to serve each other well. So that for me has been very liberating. Oh, that's so beautiful. Yeah, from the spiritual context of life, there's no divisions. There's no less than or better than. We're all equal. And so seeing it in, from that like perspective, the conscious perspective of, you know, the conscious relationship that's being developed in, in here, it's like there are no divisions. We are the same. How can people find you in different places in you know, come knock on your door. <laughs> yeah. What's your home address? No, just kidding. Yeah. Social media, where can they find out more about coaching with you? And do you coach, do you coach people from lots of different cultures or is your niche, um, pretty, you stick pretty rigidly to your niche? I coach folks from all different cultures. I, um, my, my personal, um, coaching, I have one personal coaching brand that is around Latinx, Latinos, but I do also corporate coaching. I do. Um, I'm, I have a partnership right now with um, a company where I coach attorneys, and so it's all kinds of folks. It's not just you know minority folks. It's attorneys who are wanting support. I do. Um, I, I'm starting to coach at Google for startups, the Latino founders, and um, I do coaching for Black and Brown um, corporate employees through a company called With. So it's, it's all kinds of work. And then I do the, oh, I've been coaching with the um, ALA and emotional intelligence as well. And y'all can find me on Instagram at the Harry Lopez. Um, you can also look me up at harryluislopez.com, L-O-U-I-S. And then the, Latin, the Latino Latinx brand is www.launchlatinx.co. And we're on Instagram at launchlatinx. Okay, and we'll put all that in the show notes so everyone can link up with you. Now, I have to ask, are the attorneys, is it, is it, was it funny for you to see how broken and damaged attorneys are? <laughs> <laughs> attorneys are going to be like people who have it together. 
And then you realize that law school messes up attorneys so bad because it teaches us that we're idiots and that we don't know anything. And we're publicly shamed during law school classes. I mean, I still remember, um, my, the very first time I was ever cold called on, which is like what you see in the movies where they're like, Oh, Miss Walsh, what do you say? And it was a teacher who she literally had a deck of index cards with your name written on them. And you just never knew she would just turn it and then look down to whoever she was going to ask her question to. And you were on the spot and she asked, um, and you know, what should they do now that the statute has run, uh, Miss Walsh. And I had no idea. I mean, I'm first person in my family to go to college. First person, in my family go to law school, first semester of law school. And they asked, what does it mean now that the statute has run? And I'm thinking, how does a statute run? Like, are we running quickly? Is it a sprint? But in terms of a statute of limitations, you have a certain amount of time to file something. Otherwise your deadline is passed. And that's what a statute running is in case anyone is like me and didn't know. Um, and I mean, I will never forget that moment where you realize everyone now knows that you're an idiot. Like there's no hiding anymore. Like everybody knows. And so of course, like I made a joke about it and, uh, you know, my ears turned bright red and all of that, but this is what we then have to go, um, live with for the rest of our life, hoping that we never, ever, ever feel that way again. And that's lawyers. So has that been your experience as well? 100%. And it's been really fun to work with lawyers in the past because there's so much inner work needed that there's also depth, a depth of transformations like there's just such a new a new world that's possible for lawyers. And I, I love that for them. And it's also a lot about getting out of the head and getting into the heart. And that's my favorite work. It's like, how do and we journey into hard the heart? For attorneys. Super hard, super hard. Yeah. 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 It's easier <laughs> to exist in a space in your head because then there's a right answer and you can argue against it. But when you get into the heart, things get complicated. I feel like this is a, a quote from Frozen or something, but the <laughs> Disney mom coming out. Of hey, I love that. I love Disney. I love it. It's been such a joy connecting with you. Thank you Likewise. so much for coming on and we'll link everything in the show notes so that lots of people can um, come come celebrate you with you and hopefully grow, grow together um, as you both win. Thank you so much, Harry. Thank you, Hillary. Such a pleasure. My friend, I'm so glad you joined me today. If you have a friend or family member who may need some immigration law guidance or even just day-to-day encouragement, please send them a text or email or a DM on social media and say, hey, I think this podcast is going to help you. I sure wish someone had given me the tips I'm sharing here years and years ago when I was starting out as an immigration lawyer. Thank you so much for being here. I'll see you next week. Same time, same place. Adios.